Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I am just excited, glad to be with you all this morning. Glad for everyone who's joining us online. You noticed uh, Dave is back, like he said, uh, got in more towards the end of the week, so it just made sense for me to preach again this week. And you might be wondering if you just looked at 2022 or you just started coming to our church for the last few weeks, last month or, or whatever, is, is this normal? Is, does Jeff normally preach more than, than Dave? Or is it like a 50-50 thing? Is that, is that what we're doing now? And, and the answer is no. And we, we're uh, still maybe going for like a, a once a month or a, um, every six weeks or something like that. Um, just at the beginning of this year, between the Jacobsons getting COVID and this senior pastor's retreat. That's kind of just how it worked out. So that's, that's still our heart, is to have me about once a week and to mostly hear from Dave. That's just kind of how it happened, how it landed at the beginning of this year. So this isn't the new normal of like, oh yeah, Jeff's going to preach most of the time now. That's, that's not the case. Is anyone excited for the Super Bowl today? Yeah, finally our worship has matched our level of excitement for football. We've arrived at this place, and I can't imagine uh, or couldn't have put together two more teams that people from Wisconsin feel just less about in general, either direction. Like, they don't feel strongly either way about either team, but we're going to watch it anyway because it's, it's the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> and I'm thankful... Um, that it always happens in the evening. Uh, otherwise, there would either be no one at the 1015 service, or the whole 1015 service would be doing something like this, even if they don't have a watch like me. Just being like, okay, Jeff, let's, all right, let's go, let's go. Uh, you have plenty of time, and I have plenty of time, to expound scripture for hours and hours, and we can still make it to the Super Bowl in plenty of time. <laughs> so this morning we're going to continue our series in Acts called Unstoppable, and we're going to return to Saul, who it's been a few weeks since we've heard from him, talked about him, took a little break to, to follow the, um, uh, Philip and to see how Jesus is using him in chapter 8. Now this morning our message is entitled, From Prosecuting to Proclaiming, and we'll pick up where we left off with Saul, starting in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, going all the way to verse 31. Again, uh, recently we've been taking kind of bigger passages, and we're doing that because otherwise we'd be in Acts for like three years or something like that, um, and that's not our goal. So we're going about 31 verses here, and because of that, we're going to break it up into a few different chunks instead of reading it all in once. So if you want to make your way there now, that would be great. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. As you're making your way there, let me give you a roadmap of kind of where we're going, what we'll be talking about this morning. It's going to be three ways Jesus cares for his church, and we're going to see that through uh, Saul's kind of conversion story. Three ways Jesus cares for his church. Jesus identifies himself with his church. Jesus can add anyone, even a zealous opponent, to his church. And Jesus builds his church through the unworthy. We'll also see some of the themes, like we saw last week, how the gospel baptism is accessible to everyone. Even someone like Saul, who's so far from God, so hard-hearted, and yet we're going to see how Jesus... Uh, works in his life, draws 
Saul to himself. And I'm excited to talk about that story this morning, like um, Pastor Dave was saying earlier. It's a really great passage. It's also, I have a lot to cover. It's kind of a big passage, so let's uh, dive into it. But before we do, let's pray. Just ask the Lord for his help this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that we have access to your word. Um, we have copies at home. We have copies here. We get to hear from your word each week. I pray um, that you'd be working in our hearts and our minds, even this morning, to eliminate any distractions, whether it is the big game or this um, rough week ahead at work or family or, or, or friends or anything else going on in our lives. Lord, help us to put those things out of our mind this morning and instead be here and focused and, and listening for what you have for us this morning. Uh, work through your word to be changing our hearts to be more like your son for your glory. Amen. Amen. So let me, again, read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll give you the point and we'll, we'll talk about it. Starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that's the first way Jesus cares for his church. Jesus identifies himself with his church. Jesus identifies himself with his church. Again, we're picking up where we left off with Saul. It's a fair question to ask since we haven't... Um, it's been a couple chapters, haven't talked about him for a few weeks. Has anything changed in Saul since we last heard from him? Last time we saw him, he was at the stoning of Stephen. He had the honor of holding uh, their garments as they did that. And the text explicitly says that he approved of, of the execution of Stephen. And so now he's uh, uh, instead not just approving of, but now he is uh, taking initiative to uh, be a part of this. So it's not that the high priest uh, came to him and said, hey, I really need you to go uh, do this thing for me. No, he goes to the high priest and he asks for permission to go and do this. Hey, can I have letters so I can go uh, bring back uh, believers from Damascus, from these other cities, and drag them back here? And the high priest agrees. So he gets his letters. He journeys to uh, Damascus. And on the way, he's approaching Damascus. And he sees a light. And he doesn't just see this light brighter than the midday sun. He hears a voice. And he doesn't just hear a voice. He sees Jesus himself. How do I know this? Well, first, first kind of clue for us is that... Um, any sort of manifestation of God's presence is often accompanied by this sort of bright light. So that's our first clue. Second clue is, is in verse 17 and verse 27, when, when Ananias and Barnabas um, 
basically say as much when they're talking about what happened to Saul. They say he encountered Jesus. And so often when we are reading our, our Bibles, when we have questions like this, if we just keep reading or read what's happening around it, it'll kind of give us a clue to what's happening. And then later in Acts 22, verse 14, in Acts 26, verse 16, Paul's kind of recounting what happened to him at this point, and he says um, explicitly that he saw the resurrected, glorified Jesus. But at this point, he doesn't know who it is yet that's appeared to him, so he asks the obvious question, who are you? And Jesus replies, he says, I'm Jesus. Then he says something a little bit curious, or maybe that we wouldn't have expected. He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, it seems a little odd because at this point, Jesus has been resurrected. He's been glorified. He's in heaven. There's truly nothing that they or any one of us could possibly do to, to Jesus at this point. How could I possibly persecute Jesus? But he says it this way precisely to say, when you, when you persecute my people, when you persecute my followers, you persecute me. And Jesus often talks this way about his followers. I'm thinking about uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Again, I'm going to go a few different places in Scripture this morning. If you want to follow along in your Bible, that's great. If you want to stay in Acts, that's great. It should be on the screen for us. So again, Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus is, is still on earth at this point. He's sending out the 72 uh, disciples to, to preach about the kingdom of heaven being near. This is how he kind of ends uh, that section. This is Jesus talking. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. I also see this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 40. He's talking to the righteous slash believers, kind of looking to the future now at, at judgment. It says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you fed, when you comforted, when you helped one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you helped Christ. There's an identity there. There's, there's an equating there. And let's stop for a minute and think about what that means for us. It's like, okay, Jeff, I see, I see what you're saying. He's kind of identifying himself with his people. What does that mean for us? Well, think about the, the people in your life that you identify with that closely, that you, you think this way about those people. Now, maybe it should be more, more people for me, but when I think about it in my life, it's really my, my wife and my daughter. 
where if, if, if someone does something for them, if something, someone hurts them, I feel like they did it for me. I feel like they hurt me. And this is one of the ways we get to imagine the Father's, Jesus's, the Holy Spirit's love for us. This love I have for my wife, this love I have for my child, is a picture of the love Jesus is displaying for us, his church, his followers. That anything that happens to us, it feels like he is taking that too. It feels like it's happening to him. And so when we say, when we end our service, so at the very end of the service, Dave's going to come up and, and you know, say a couple things, and we always, always end our service with, you are loved, right? And he's, Dave, when he does that, is not just saying that, that himself, Dave, loves you guys, even though he does. He's not just saying that the church loves you guys, even though we do, and we, we are glad you're here. We want to know you, want to be known by you. But he's also saying that Jesus loves you, most importantly. Jesus loves you, and he loves you with this kind of love, this same kind of love that uh, I or someone could feel about your spouse or your children. Jesus gives us those things, these relationships, as a picture of the kind of love Jesus feels for us. So even though Jesus isn't sitting uh, here, like in the front row, I imagine that's where he would sit if he came to church, <laughs> telling us he loves us, he gives us ways in creation and in our relationships to imagine that love. That's one way to do it. Of course, there are other ways to experience Jesus' love. Right? We read about it. We read about the things that Jesus has done for us. We read about how he's died for us on the cross. We have personal experiences in our own lives about what Jesus has done for us. And if Jesus loves his church this way, if Jesus loves his, his followers this way, what does that say about how we should think about, serve, and love our brothers and sisters in Christ? So if, if Jesus thinks about the church this way and loves the church this way, how should we love the church? I think if, if, if I asked everyone in this room, do you love Jesus? You would all be like, yes. Like, I love him so much. He, he died for me. He died for the forgiveness of my sins. I would do anything for him. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He's totally self-sufficient within himself. He has absolutely everything he needs. He, he doesn't want for anything. And everything we have is from him anyway. So what do we, what do, we do with this desire? Well, think about what Jesus is saying here in Acts when he tells Saul, when you, when you do this to my followers, you do this to me. More explicitly in Matthew, when you, when you served my brothers and sisters in Christ, in this way you serve me. And so when you, when you serve us, when you, when you serve the church, even if you're just greeting, even if you're making coffee, that probably makes you like a, a Sunday morning celebrity if you make the coffee. If you're making coffee, if you're downstairs teaching our children about Jesus, you are not just serving us, but you're serving Christ. Can we uh, treat one another with respect? Can we have unity as a local church? Can we desire to be known by 
the people in the church and know the people in the church and be in relationship with people in the church out of our love for Christ, despite all of our differences, whether that's um, the way we uh, think about uh, masks or politics or um, theological differences or difference in hobbies or differences in uh, status or how we grew up or how we look or how we um, spend our free time. Despite differences in all of these ways, can our commonality in, in love for Christ and out of our love for Christ engage with one another in kind of this service and how we think and love one another? I'll give you an example. Even though my family, uh, my wife and I, it's not just that we, we don't love the Packers. It's that we don't love football in general. Can you still love our family despite our, our lack of love for the Packers in Wisconsin? And then add on top of that, that I don't like a tea or coffee. And like, didn't, it really weighs on Dave to try to, to try to love me well. And yet we still do it uh, out of our mutual love for Christ. <laughs> but can we love one another? Can we have unity despite all of our differences? Do you think about this like this, about the church, like Christ thinks about the church? And do you still think and act and pray like Christ is, is intimately involved in the affairs of the church today, actively involved in building his church today like he was at Acts? Or do we fall into the trap of, of feeling like the church is what what you see before you, it's, it's the people here today. And again, because Jesus isn't here sitting in the front row, right? he's not moving and working and it's kind of on us. Or do we pray like Jesus at, and ex, with expectancy knowing that Jesus is working and moving in his church? That's the first way we see Jesus' care for the church. It's the way he identifies with, protects, and is intimately involved with the affairs of the church. The second way Jesus cares for his church, Jesus can add anyone, even a zealous opponent, to his church. Jesus can add anyone, even a zealous opponent, to his church. We'll pick up again in Acts 9, verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So Saul is stricken with blindness, gets, gets led the rest of the way into town, and whether um, grieving the loss of his sight or in repentance of, of what he thought about Jesus and realizing who Jesus was, he refuses to eat or drink for three days. And there's this disciple named Ananias. He's in Damascus already. And after Saul has his vision of Jesus, Ananias gets his own vision, who explains he's going to heal uh, Saul through him. And Ananias' response is probably about how we would respond in this situation, which is something like, really, Jesus? Like that guy? You sure you want me to heal him? Right? Are you, are you sure? We've heard him persecuting uh, the believers in Jerusalem, and now he's coming here with these letters to, to arrest us and to, to drag us back to Jerusalem. And how does Jesus respond to uh, Ananias' questions? Was it like a, oh, yeah, like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize who that was, or like, oh, yeah, I, I'd forgotten about all those terrible things he did, um, never mind. No, right? Of course not. Jesus knows exactly who he's dealing with, exactly what he's talking about. He has a plan. And in this exchange between them and kind of this section, here's where we see a lot of the themes we saw last week. We've seen throughout Acts. We'll continue to see in Acts, right? The gospel is accessible to everyone. Last week it was... Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, this foreigner who's not one of God's chosen people, and yet he is able to come to Christ and accept the gospel and be baptized. And we saw Jesus relentlessly pursue the Ethiopian eunuch through, through working his life, drawing him, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, to himself. He's sending Philip to minister to him and share the gospel. And now... Uh, we see that, that someone who's, who's so against Christians, he's, he is persecuting Christians, he's after Christians, is, is coming to know Christ. Christ is sending um, Ananias to, to minister to him, to heal him, to share the gospel with him. Either that or uh, Saul already knew the gospel. Uh, we know this because um, once uh, Ananias comes and, and talks with him, heals him. So Saul was, uh, received the Holy Spirit and was baptized. And those things only happen when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the, the big point is this, is that Jesus and the gospel can reach anyone. No one is too far gone. No one has, has hardened their heart so much, has, has so against the Lord, so opposed to him, so uh, against him that they can't be saved. I mean, look at Saul, right? Again, approved of, of Stephen's death, was so zealous to 
to persecute Christians, that he's, he's taking the initiative to go to the high priest, say, hey, I need to go round these people up and, and bring them back here, presumably to, to be on trial like Stephen was. He thought he was on a mission from God to eradicate heresy, and yet all it took was one encounter with Jesus to totally change his world, totally change his thinking, totally change his beliefs and make him acknowledge that he was wrong. And Jesus is still encountering, still changing hearts, still drawing people totally opposed to him today. If you've never heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield, I would encourage you to look her up uh, it's just an amazing example of, of this, of, of God's working and drawing people to him. She uh, is uh, authored several books since then and, and has some good resources on ministering to the LGBTQ plus community and hospitality and what that looks like. But let me just share the kind of the short version of her story with you. So it was the late 90s, and she is a tenured professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University, specializing in queer theory. She was a leader in LGBTQ rights and um, was in an open lesbian relationship at the time and was actively writing a book on uh, the religious right and, I quote, why they hated people like me, end quote. And in the midst of all this, one day she's invited to dinner by uh, Pastor Ken Smith and his wife. Apparently they were neighbors. And I don't know how the, the tenured professor and the pastor got to, be, got to be neighbors or in the same tax bracket. So I need to like call them up and be like, hey, what's your secret? But anyway, <laughs> they invite her over to uh, dinner. And she, she said, I only accepted that invitation. That way I would have more material for my book about why they hated me so much. And instead of finding material for her book, she found instead that she was blown away by their hospitality and their love for her. She ended up coming back for dinner over and over again and ultimately started asking questions about the Bible and about Jesus. Long story short, she ends up coming to Christ through... Um, their, their ministry to her and, and having her over to their house. She's now married to a pastor, and like I mentioned before, has offered, authored excuse me, several Christian books. I think probably the, the most well-known is called um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. But the point is this, in today's day and age, can you think of anyone more opposed to the gospel, or anyone more or less likely not to, or less likely to come to Christ than she was. I mean, her perspective at this time was the, the religious riot Christians hate me so much that I'm going to write a book about it. And there's, there's things we could, we, sh we could say about that of, of is this right? Is this the way they should think about us? Is, does this say something about the way we treat them, blah, blah, blah? But the point is this, despite feeling that way, about feeling like these people hate me so much and I'm, I hate them back, through this pastor and his wife sharing Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus drew her to himself through that ministry despite all of these barriers. Jesus can do that same thing for people in your life. And do you, do you believe, do you act, do you pray like that's true? We all have that fam- family member, that friend, that coworker, that neighbor, where you, you think about them, and, and intellectually we know, well, Jesus can save anyone. But in, in how we pray and how we act, we basically say, he can't save anyone, but I'm pretty confident he's not going to save that one, right? Um, I'm going to skip inviting them over for dinner, or maybe we pray for them for a little bit. I'm certainly guilty about this. Pray for them for a while. You don't, you don't see any change. You don't, you don't see anything happen. And you say, well, God must uh, not, not going to save this person, so I, I'll just uh, kind of stop. We have this reaction, kind of like Ananias' reaction to, to visiting Saul and healing him. It's kind of like, really? Him? Do you know what he's done? But God can move and work in that person in your life who seems so far from him, so hardened their heart against him, just like he worked in Saul's life, just like he worked in Rosaria's That's the second way Jesus cares for his church. He doesn't just bring in those people we'd expect to come to Christ. All have access to accept Christ, and sometimes he draws and he works through those people that we'd least expect. The third way Jesus cares for his church, Jesus builds his church through the unworthy. Jesus builds his church through the unworthy the unworthy, looking at Acts chapter 9, verse 20 through 31, starting in verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who have heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who were called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the, to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
now we kind of get to, to see a glimpse of, uh, of Saul's redemption or of his repentance. And, and again, when, we, when you repent, it's this kind of a 180 moment. There's a, you were going a certain direction, you stopped, and now you're, you're headed in the opposite direction. It's not always as radical uh, as we see in Saul's life, but it is that same sort of 180 twist. So again, Saul was, was persecuting God's people, uh, uh, hated them, threatened them, wanted to drag them back to Jerusalem. But what do we see Saul doing now? It says, immediately he went into the synagogues and proclaimed Christ. He was threatening the life of Christians, and now his life is being threatened. So much so, he has to escape Damascus through an opening in the wall, lowered down in a basket by the other, some of the disciples. And then he goes to Jerusalem. Again, he's, he's proclaiming Christ. He's, he's arguing with the Hellenists. And there again, his life is being threatened. So they uh, send him to Caesarea and ultimately to Tarsus. He goes from prosecuting Christians, persecuting Christians, to proclaiming the good news about Christ, that 180 Don't miss this this morning. We're learning something about how God operates, right? He, he uses the unexpected, the sinner, the lowly, to accomplish his purposes so that everyone will know that it's not of their own strength, it's not of their own doing, but it's God's working in him and that God would receive the glory. Saul later, when he's writing the church uh, in Corinth, this letter that became our 1 Corinthians, uh, is talking about this time of, of his life and, and essentially says this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He calls himself the least of the apostles, and he was able to accomplish so much, not because of how great and wonderful he was, but because of the grace of God with him. Earlier in that same letter, in 1 Corinthians, he, he speaks about this idea more generally, kind of broadening it to the whole church. That happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We talked about several weeks ago now, um, when we were talking about stewardship, how God has given us everything we have, those time, the talents, and our treasures. And it, our kind of takeaway here isn't, let's never boast about any of those things. But when you do boast, let's boast 
in the Lord. I'll give you an example. His name is, is David Wise. He's an Olympic athlete. He's going to compete this week. And in, in, listen to this. Men's freestyle skiing halfpipe. So if you knew that was an event already, I'm impressed. Otherwise, now you know what sermon research is like, right? I'm looking, looking up David Wise here, who's competing this week. He's, he's a two-time gold medalist. He's a, a believer. Obviously, he's, he's good at what he's done. Again, two gold medals. Uh, probably the best in the world for a while. Humility in this case, when someone says, like, wow, you're really good at uh, freestyle skiing halfpipe, which, again... Who knew? When someone says, wow, you're really good at that, humility in this case does not look like, like, you know, oh, shucks, like, I'm not that great, right? Which is kind of a, the Midwest nice way of doing it. We've all kind of been there, done that. That wouldn't work for him, right? Yes, that's, that's not true. Like, objectively, you're, you're the best in the world at this thing. Uh, it is pretty great. But I loved what he said in, in his blog a few years back. Again, sermon research, got to read this guy's blog. Um, I loved what he said in his blog and how he uh, uh, humbly bragged about his God. I'll kind of summarize it for you here. He attributes his success to his, his faith in God, not because God miraculously makes, himself go, makes him go faster, but because his trust in God grounds him in humble confidence. In other words, I'm able to do what I do because of the confidence I have in how Christ has worked in me. And when you're complimented, you don't have to be an Olympian to say, thank you, God has helped me be able to do this in such and such a way because he's worked in my life in such and such a way. He, he allows me to preach because I don't need to find my... Um, Identity and whether or not I preached well on Sunday morning. Or I'm a, I can get better at preaching because uh, it's, I can receive constructive feedback and it won't crush me because my identity is in Christ or something along those lines. You, can, you have a testimony of how Jesus has helped you to do that thing well, well and all you need to do is kind of share that. Maybe you'd say, Jeff, uh, that's not really where, where I'm at. I'm not like, wow, look how, how great I am and I need to help uh, talking about it humbly. I, I feel unworthy or kind of unwanted. And I think those thoughts are even more uncommon in winter and we're kind of all trapped inside and it's, it's dark out and things like that. God delights to use you. Just like he used Saul, God delights to use the poor, the outcast, the weak, the unexpected. And so often our tendency is to want acceptance and to want praise from other people. And then we find that uh, people in general have kind of conflicting desires from us. They want different things from us. We quickly find that we can't satisfy everyone and we quickly find that it's a moving target. Maybe they're, they're satisfied with what I did today, and then all of a sudden tomorrow they are no longer. Let's instead seek to be accepted, seek the praise of the most praiseworthy of all, God himself. God wants you. 
And that's more important, that's better than being idolized by everyone in the whole world. Our unbelieving friends with us this morning, that applies to you too. Nothing you've ever done, nothing you ever will do will prevent God from accepting you, prevent God from using you, prevent God from wanting you and making you one of us. And we, we want you to be a part of this church family. All you have to do is acknowledge that you've, you've sinned, you've, you've fallen short, and that you need Jesus' help. You need Jesus' justification for your sins. You needed Jesus to die on the cross for you and confess him as Lord and Savior. And that's a decision that you can make even today. This section ends with a kind of summary that using ordinary men like Stephen, like Philip, using people like Saul that were kind of against the gospel, against believers, that the church had peace and was being built up. God used all that, all these people, to build his church, and he's continuing to use those same type of people, people like us, to build his church today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking people like us, people that are, that are unworthy, people uh, like Saul who we didn't run towards you, we ran away from you, and yet you pursued us. Pray that you'd continue to use people like us to further your church and, and to build it here on earth. We ask for your help in doing that. Help us to be faithful, um, to pray like we believe your promises. Pray like you save the most unexpected people. We pray like you are building and working in your church this morning. We confess that so often we uh, don't act and respond in faith, and so often we give up, or so often we're not uh, persistent in praying for those people in our lives. Thank you for your acceptance of us. Thank you for your acceptance of anyone who would call upon your name. And we look forward to one day um, being with you face-to-face and experiencing that love and joy of, of your presence in person. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.